Okay, so today's cold open is going to seem a bit weird, probably because it is, but go with me on it, because it'll make sense soon. I hope. So it's no surprise to anyone that I am a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Somewhat controversially, I have to admit that for the most part, I prefer the films over the books. Don't get me wrong, I love both a lot, but I lean more towards the movies. Sorry, Tom Bombadil, but you're the price we have to pay for a more satisfying conclusion to the Battle of Pelennor Fields. So with that in mind, here's the scene. It's December 2001. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and the trailer has just dropped. Why am I mentioning the trailer instead of just cutting to the chase to me seeing the film? Well, because even the trailer was straight fire. That's how good this movie was. Go back and watch that trailer and try to imagine how fucking mind-blowing that must have been to little teenage Demo. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil. How many times do you think I watched that trailer? Over 9,000! And, younger listeners, try to imagine, this was way back before YouTube. I had to download that trailer. Off LimeWire. Over dial-up. It took three days and I got a thousand viruses, but it was worth it. I was like a pirate dry docked in Singapore, but it was worth it. That trailer was, and is, awesome. And then, off the back of that trailer, I went to the midnight premiere of Fellowship of the Ring, and it was one of the greatest things ever, and it was one of the last times in my life that I was genuinely happy. The movie was fantastic. I cannot overemphasize just how much I love that film. I watched it again a couple of days ago, and it's still great. Even the special effects mostly hold up. There's a couple of bits of janky green screening, but you have to remember they were inventing a lot of this shit on the fly. They were doing pretty well with what they had. Anyway, a great time was had by all. I would have followed you, my brother. My captain. My king. And I walk out of Fellowship of the Ring, mind blown, and I immediately want to go and see it again. And I did a couple of times throughout the next week. But as I thought about the film over the next few days, one particular thought kept bubbling up to the surface. One intrusive thought above all others. Nobody in that movie ever took a shit. Nine people on an epic adventure, on foot, and not once does anyone ever stop to drop their guts. Think about it. And now you're burdened with that trauma too. But think about it, nobody ever stops to take a shit. Now that's high fantasy. And you can try and explain some of it away, sure. Gandalf is literally their world's version of an angel. Aragorn is a magic man from Middle-earth's version of Atlantis. Legolas has his own thing going on. And you could argue that lumbus bread probably gets completely absorbed in the human digestive tract. But they don't get lumbus bread until they hit Lothlorien. And none of that accounts for the hobbits, who are stoners who never stop eating. The first major fight in Lord of the Rings comes when the hobbits can't stop themselves from making a full English breakfast in front of a Nazgul. 
the film goes to great lengths to point out how many meals a hobbit has in between breakfast and lunch. And it is not just brunch. Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? And hobbits, they're little people. With what they eat, you can't tell me those hobbits aren't shitting up to four times a day. Multiply that by four hobbits in the Fellowship, that is an exponential amount of shitting that never made it past the cutting room floor, even on the extended editions. So, you know, keep that in mind. And you know those hobbits had to have brought up this issue with Gandalf and Elrond a bunch of times. The Shire is an insular place full of insular people who like everything in life to go as planned. There is no way that they're going to be comfortable with an away toilet situation at the best of times, let alone as they're trying to navigate the mines of Moria. Let us go through the mines of Moria. Moria. You fear to go into those mines. The dwarves delve too greedily and too deep. Frodo, maybe, because he's a Baggins and they're rebels, and Merry is an anarchist, but Sam and Pippin? They're private time people for sure. I'm rambling, let's kick off the show. But keep in mind, before embarking on any endeavor, large or small, one of the most crucial elements to keep in mind is where you're going to take a dump. Something that I've been asked from time to time in the course of doing this show is if I could travel back in time, how far back would I go? And that's a fair question. You might expect that I'd answer something like the Roman Republic, and there's a lot to like about the Roman Republic. But like all times, there's a lot not to like either. It all depends on how rich I get to be. And that's pretty much the correct answer at any point in history, from the time the Sumerians invented agriculture right up until three seconds ago. I'd be having a lot more fun now if I were a billionaire. Just like I'd have a lot more fun if I were Marcus Crassus and not one of the slaves of Marcus Crassus. But if I'm going to be brutally honest though, if I could travel back in time, I don't think I'd go any further than the 1990s. I can remember living without the internet, and I'd rather not go through that again. And if you absolutely pressed me on the issue, the absolute furthest time in history that I'd travel back to, being the huge fan of history that I am, the absolute terminus of when I would go back to would be the early 20th century. Because I'm a huge fan of things like vaccines and refrigeration and indoor plumbing, I cannot overemphasize just how much of a deal-breaker indoor plumbing is for me. It is a must. I am not going anywhere without indoor plumbing. I am not going anywhen without indoor plumbing. I once went on a holiday as a child. I would have been somewhere around 9 or 10 years old, I guess. And for this holiday, we went to a place that didn't have indoor plumbing. And I am, to this day, deeply psychologically scarred by that time. I never got over it. I'm not doing a bit here. This is turning into therapy. I have coprophobia now. 
it might seem like a weird hang-up, but my biggest stipulation regarding time travel is flush toilets. No flush toilets, no demo. I don't care if I get to find out what happened to the Persian cavalry at Marathon, if there's no flush, there's no demo. Something that seems to get lost in translation whenever we take a look at the past is an entire sense. Whenever we study history, we can read accounts and recreate events, we can imagine how things looked and how they sounded, but something that no book or movie or TV show can ever do is recreate the smells of the past. And the past absolutely stank. It reeked. For the majority of history, up until about a hundred years ago, pretty much everyone and everywhere, at all times, smelled worse than anything we've ever had to smell in this day and age. And that was their baseline. The past stank. People didn't bathe, they didn't brush their teeth, they didn't know about soap or shampoo or toothpaste or deodorant. There was so much body odor. And they didn't have goddamn flush toilets. For the most part, they didn't even have toilets. And they certainly didn't have toilet paper. They didn't wipe their asses. People stank. The world stank. You've got animals shitting absolutely everywhere. The major means of transportation was the horse, and horses shit everywhere all the time. Imagine the amount of cars on the road today. That's horses. And now imagine those cars do a massive dump every couple of hours, and that dump just sits there all day. Imagine open sewers everywhere cesspools where all of the filth of the world accumulated, uncovered and left to ripen in the sun. That was normal. That was the world. It stank. Oh, sweet, merciful Odin did the world stink to high hell all the time. It was a nightmare. It stinks. It stinks. It stinks. Yes, Mr. Sherman, everything stinks. But there was one time when the general stink of the world outdid itself. Where, even for people used to a world that utterly reeked all the time, the stink was absolutely unbearable. It was a smell so bad that thousands of people actually died from it. And it happened in London in 1858. Smack bang in the middle of what we call today the Victorian era. This was a situation that could only really happen to the extent that it did in a city like London during an age like the Victorian era. It needed a civic system suffering from centuries of neglect, the unchecked capitalist rampage of the Industrial Revolution, the utter disregard for the common people that came with the Industrial Revolution, and the English aristocracy's particular contempt for humanity. All of these elements had to come together at exactly the right time, and in the summer of 1858, they did. Yes, Mr. Sherman, everything stinks. The genesis of this show came about a few years ago now when I was contracted to write an article about Queen Victoria. It's still out there if you've got the time and inclination to search for it, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's kind of like this show, but they made me take out all the fun bits. But if you're obsessive, go for it. 
But writing this article, I realized that I actually liked communicating history, and now here we are, having a blast. Aren't we great? Woo! And there's something especially fascinating about the Victorian era. It's just an interesting time. I could do a hundred shows, each a hundred hours, and I wouldn't even be able to scratch the surface of the number of ways that the Victorian era was so batshit fucking insane. For instance, in this show, I'm not even going to mention Spring Hill Jack. It was a crazy time, and we can't even scratch the surface. But that doesn't mean we can't try. For instance, if you ever see an early photograph from back in the days when cameras were first invented, everyone is a tiny little bit blurry in these photos. But you might notice if you're looking through photos from this era, everyone's a little bit blurry, but there's one or two people who are sharp and in focus. Well, that's because that person was dead. Cameras had an exposure time of over a minute back then, probably closer to 90 seconds, and nobody can remain perfectly still for that long. It's just impossible. You'll twitch a little bit, or you'll blink, or you'll sneeze, or just little tiny movements over that 90 seconds, which is why people in old photos are just a little bit fuzzy. They're trying to stay still, but they can't because they're alive. But you know who can stay still for a very long time? Dead people. Photography was crazy expensive back then, and before the invention of antibiotics, people died from a paper cut. Child mortality was about 50%. People just died all the time. Seriously, the amount of death before, like, the 1930s was astonishing. As I've discussed previously, even paint during the Victorian era could quite literally melt your eyeballs. So if you're going to pay money for an expensive family portrait taken by an expensive photographer with an expensive camera, then you're going to have to get your money's worth. Even if one of your family members died last week. What, someone died between you booking the photographer and the day of the shoot? No biggie. Just wedge a metal rod in the person's back and stand them up like a scarecrow, weekend at Bernie's style. That's what you did. You're not going to waste the photo shoot just because someone's dead. So if someone's looking particularly sharp and in focus during a Victorian-era photograph, that's because that person's dead. Yeah, now you're all going to go and look at Victorian photographs to see which people are in focus, aren't you? Sickos. You make me so proud. Victorian-era was crazy. There were the social programs. And when I say social programs, I mean that there were no social programs. It was a pure capitalist nightmare. If you weren't mega-rich then you were just a cog and a machine, and you could, and would, be replaced without a second thought. Hell, they sent children into coal mines. Imagine what kind of shit they did to adults. I'd go further into it, but you should all be up with your dickens by now. We're coming into Christmas, and he wrote one of the go-to Christmas novels. I'm not going to rehash old ground. Go and read Dickens. But just know that there's a reason that when we describe something as a nightmarish capitalist hellscape, we use the term Dickensian. For instance, just quickly, this was one of the ways that they dealt with sheltering the homeless back then. You didn't want people dying on the street during a London winter. That was bad. Not bad because people were dying on the street because they couldn't afford housing. No, that was their fault for not being rich and God was punishing them for being poor. So letting them die in the street was the right thing to do. But you've got to think about this. Who's going to move all of those corpses? Who's going to take them away and bury them? Are you going to pay for someone to remove corpses? No, I thought not. Incidentally, 
That's why there were more than a few corpses littering the street on any particular given day, because no one was being paid to take them away. Capitalism is fun. So you don't want homeless people dying on the street, but you don't want homeless people on the street either. It's a bad look. Homeless people are ugly. I'm not making that as a sort of generalized statement. I'm putting myself in the character of a 1800s British aristocrat. Just uh, context, people. Anyway, these people might not have two pennies to rub together, but think about this. Maybe they have one penny, one solitary penny to their name. It sure would be a shame if they died still holding on to that penny, wouldn't it? So we'd better milk these unfortunate souls for all they're worth. And here's how they did it. So if you were unfortunate enough to not have a home during the Victorian era, and plenty of people were in the same strife as you, here were your options. Option one. You could go to what was called a penny sit-up. Holy shit, this is just awful. So a penny sit-up was just sort of like a, a hall, kind of like a church with a bunch of pews or benches. So just a big empty space with a bunch of long benches. And you'd pay a penny, and for that penny, you would be allowed to sit there all night. Out of the elements, like the wind and the snow. So that's nice, but that's all you got. So that's less nice. You were allowed to sit out of the snow on a bench. That was it. That was all you were allowed to do. You paid for sitting, and sitting is what you will do. God help you if you tried to lie down. This isn't a hotel we're running here. It's a sit-up. There's a clue in the name here. That's what you do. You sit up. All night. In a seated position. But hey, it's marginally warmer than outside, right? So in a penny sit-up, you don't get to sleep because you're not allowed to lie down. But Damo, you say, I'm a canny cat. I see a loophole to exploit. What if I can sleep sitting up? I'll just close my eyes and doze off in a seated position. Checkmate unregulated capitalism and human misery? Well, not so fast, Buster. This is Dickensian, remember? Dickensian means hell. They've thought of this loophole as well, and you're going to pay for your insolence. So in a penny sit-up, if you fell asleep sitting up, then the person who owned the penny sit-up had a bouncer on staff to come and jolt you awake. They had someone who would come along and poke you with a big stick until you woke up because fuck you for being poor. I can totally see Jeff Bezos going for this. And Jeff, if you're listening, stop taking notes. No, stop. Seriously, stop. No, naughty. Naughty. Jeff, stop. Don't make me get the spray bottle. So that's a penny sit-up. But what if you've got more than a penny? What if you want to get really extravagant and spend two pennies? You're a wealthy homeless person. You have two basic units of currency. Are you able to sleep for the night on two pennies? Are you able to get out of the elements for the night and maybe even get a few minutes of actual real sleep? Well, yes, of course you can. But somehow, the way that this happened was even worse than a penny sit-up. Jeff, stop it. No notes. Stop. Jeff? For two pennies, you could go to what was called a two-penny hangover. Jesus Christ, holy shit, 
the two penny hangover was just oh go and look for a picture of a two penny hangover it's just it's an amazon wet dream it is okay for two pennies you could sleep for the whole night without someone poking you in the head until you woke up how positively decadent but here's the deal you weren't allowed to spend that night in comfort oh no you still had to be punished for being poor. That was the natural order of things. So here's what a two-penny hangover was. Brace yourselves. I mean, seriously, brace yourselves, because you might fall over in one of these things. It's dangerous as all hell. A two-penny hangover was a large hall with ropes running between support columns. So you've got the columns that hold up the building, and between them is a tightly drawn rope. So there's rows and rows of ropes that are drawn at about waist height, kind of like the velvet rope at a nightclub, but solid enough that they could support a human. And instead of velvet, it's roughly woven hemp, because again, fuck you for being poor. And for two pennies a night, you can sleep on the rope. (laughs) Seriously. That's what you did. That's a two-penny hangover. For two pennies, you can spend the night hanging over a rope. You just sort of slump down over the rope, and I, I don't know how else to describe it. You would just sort of put your torso on the rope and go to sleep. I don't know how anyone would be able to fall asleep dangling over a rope, but then again, I've never spent 16 hours in a Dickensian misery factory every day of my life until I died at the age of 23 either, so com si com sa. And here's the fun part. When morning came and it was time to kick everyone out, the people who ran the two-penny hangover would just cut the rope and everyone would be rudely awoken as they fell to the floor. Isn't shitting on the working class fun? <laughs> We're having a ball. Just in case I haven't hammered home why I wouldn't travel back in time further than 1997, it's because of shit like this. Hey, can I get somewhere to sleep tonight? Yeah, sure, here's my hotel. You can pay me for the privilege of sleeping on a bunch of rusty thumbtacks that I've set on fire. Uh, that doesn't sound pleasant. Uh, is there something else that we can do, maybe? I mean, since the floor space is already there, could you, you, couldn't you just not go to the trouble of laying down the flaming rusty thumbtacks and I could maybe just, you know, maybe sleep in the dirt or on a concrete slab or something. No, no, you wouldn't be sufficiently miserable. You need to suffer for being poor. Do I need to call the Rosas? Don't make me call the Rosas. Now, right now you might be thinking, what if you're rich? What if you've got four pennies? You're just swimming in pennies. Well, In that case, we can't have you getting ideas above your station, you lowly proletariat scum. A poor person with four pennies, how absurd. You need to be punished for being poor. So for four pennies, you could spend the night out of the cold. You could sleep, and you could even do it without having to dangle from a rope. Hell, we'll even give you a tattered blanket and maybe a slab of stale bread and and some sort of tea. But not a good tea, mind you. You're not getting a Ceylon or something. It's going to be a dirty English breakfast. We don't want you thinking that you're better than your station. So for four pennies, you can have all of that, but we're going to make you sleep in a coffin. Just to remind you of your mortality. We'll give you a modicum of decency. 
marginally treat you like a human being with thoughts and feelings, but we're going to force you to sleep in a coffin because why the fuck not? And you're probably thinking, couldn't they just put a cot there? It's roughly the same dimensions as a coffin. Does it have to be a coffin? No, you need to be reminded that you're poor and you're going to die soon. I can totally see Jeff Bezos going for this. Oh, and do you get any privacy in your coffin? Absolutely not. It is just a line of coffins on the floor filled with poor people eating the same food you'd take for the ducks at the park. And here's where everything sort of ties in together. Imagine this situation. Imagine a hundred people crowded into a tiny space like a Brazilian prison cell, each trying to live as best they can in their little coffin world. Here's the million dollar question for you, good listeners. Where is the bathroom? Yeah, there isn't one. And that's going to be a problem. Not just for the hundreds of thousands of people living in these dingy squats and shanty towns, but for everyone in London, regardless of station. When you gotta go, you gotta go. But where you gotta go, that's another story entirely. Because London didn't really have a sewer system. Or to put it another way, London was the sewer system. When you needed to lay some cable, well, you just went behind a bush or something. Or if you're going to be really polite about it, you just go straight into the Thames instead of going on the street and waiting for the rain to carry it into the Thames for you. That was the full extent of the London sewer system at the time. To put things in perspective, until the time period in today's show, the mid-1800s, the administration of London's sewer system was the same ministry that had been implemented by King Henry VIII. There had been no changes to the London sewer system for over 300 years. It was still the same. So from the time of Shakespeare to the time of Charles Dickens, with the entirety of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and the Industrial Revolution in between, London was running on the exact same sewer system. And that sewer system was not great. If you're familiar with the Discworld series of novels, which you should be, I mean, if you aren't, then what is your malfunction? But if you're familiar with the Discworld series of novels, and I'm going to assume that you are, the Ankh River in Discworld is based on the Thames. And in Discworld, the Ankh was said to be so polluted that you could walk on it. There are a number of jokes in Discworld about the Discworld equivalent of the Mafia putting concrete shoes on someone and then dumping them into the ank, and that was their way to serve someone a warning, because the victim would have time to chisel their feet out of the concrete, dust themselves off, and then walk to shore long before they started actually sinking in the river. And the sad thing is that this isn't far from the actual truth. The Thames in Victorian times was so heinously filthy, it defied belief. It actually became world famous for being a putrescent, fecund stream of effluvia that made people pray for death. London's sewer system was created in the 16th century, and created is kind of a strong word, because what happened was basically London just bricked over the Fleet and Walbrook rivers, and then just called that a sewer. So they just kind of blacktopped two minor rivers and called it a day. 
in the 1600s, and that was the last that anyone ever thought about sewage. Basically, their entire sewer system was having various sized holes in the ground, and then when they filled a series of trenches that carried the excess to larger holes, and so on and so forth, until eventually the forces of fluid dynamics carried them all the way to the Thames, where everything got nice and soupy, and eventually it was all flushed out to sea. This is exactly as hygienic as you're thinking. Oh, and if you're thinking, hang on, with a pit system of open sewers lying around everywhere, what's stopping the runoff of these shit pits from just overflowing into the water table and seeping into the basements of people's homes? Well, if you're thinking that, then all I can do is salute your perspicacity and say, what indeed? Yes, you could wake up one day with a basement full of dookie. It happened all the time. But it gets even worse. What is it that makes butt stink so stinky? That's right, methane. So all of this freestanding sewage could create pockets of methane everywhere, even in people's basements. Yes, Mr. Sherman, everything stinks. And remember that we don't have widespread electricity yet. Everything is mostly done by gaslight. So imagine that you're heading down to the basement to fetch a bottle of wine or whatever, holding a kerosene lamp in your hands for light, when suddenly you hit a massive fart bubble and... Imagine dying because of a collective London fart bomb. And London kept growing and growing and growing and there were more and more people. London was the capital of the world after all. And they all just basically kind of... shat in the river. If you haven't guessed, this is what scientists call, quote, a bad thing. Because the Thames isn't just the Thames. It's the beating heart and soul of London. It was the way that people got around the country. You'd get a ferry of some kind up or down the river. It was a major transportation route. Most of the industry in England relied on the Thames to move their goods. The naval industry was heavily dependent on the Thames. And remember, this was a time when the sun didn't set on the British Empire, so that's a lot of navy. Oh, and it was also their main source of drinking water. And lest we forget from 30 seconds ago, it was also the sewer system. As you can probably imagine, these two things coupled together caused a couple of problems. You tend to get a bit of a problem with disease when your potable water system and your sewer system are the same system. London had massive cholera outbreaks in 1832, 1848, and 1853. At least a hundred thousand people died. At least. Mind you, the average life expectancy of someone not in the aristocracy at the time was 23, so those mortality figures would have happened anyway, but that's still a lot of people. And you might think that I'm doing a bit here, but I'm not. This isn't comic exaggeration. The average life expectancy of the working class in the mid-1800s in London was 23 years of age. No healthcare, no welfare, no safety net, no environmental oversight, no industrial oversight, no limit on the number of days or hours worked, no such thing as overtime or a weekend, no such thing as sick leave, no such thing as child labor laws. It was hell. It was a living, nightmarish hell. Keep this in mind the next time some libertarian starts running their mouth about big government, and never forget that libertarians are the most evil of all people. Never forget that the existence of child labor laws 
is an admission that not enough people inherently believe that it is immoral to send a baby into a coal mine. This time period is the proof. But the biggest problem that Victorian London had was not, oddly enough, industrial-scale child abuse, although it was certainly a problem. The biggest problem they had at the time wasn't so much the sewage, although it was indeed a big problem. The biggest problem they had was that people were really fucking stupid. Your average person was an idiot, sure, but that wasn't really their fault. They'd been working in a coal mine since they were eight months old. It's not their fault. But even the so-called educated people of the time were idiots, and they were the worst kind of idiots because of the Dunning-Kruger effect. They were idiots who thought they were smart. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of science happening in this period, and people like Michael Faraday and James Clark Maxwell, sure, but by and large, people, especially educated people, were really dumb. And they didn't put two and two together. They didn't associate the sewage they were drinking with the truly epic amount of cholera going around. They didn't see the cause and effect. To them, those were two completely unrelated problems. So the standard thinking at the time was the so-called miasma theory of disease. Miasma is Greek for bad air. This was before germ theory or things like that. In fact, Ignaz Semmelweis, the pioneer of germ theory, would actually be committed to an asylum for his idea that there are invisible creatures that make people sick. The phrase that doctors used back then was, quote, a gentleman's hands are always clean, end quote, which means that doctors never wash their hands. Because dirt wouldn't dare sully the hands of an aristocrat. Gosh, no. Ignaz Semmelweis died in a mental institution, bound in a straitjacket, because he was trying to tell doctors that the reason all of their maternity patients were dying in childbirth was because they were delivering babies immediately after doing an autopsy without washing their hands in between. I'm not making that part up either. That's exactly what happened. People were fucking stupid. So anyway, miasma theory. Doctors of the time needed something to account for all of the illness and disease that was happening, and it obviously wasn't invisible creatures called germs, that's just nonsense. So they had miasma theory. Which is so, so close to what was actually the problem while still being a total swing and a miss. Miasma theory was that when something smelled bad, it meant that the air was carrying disease, and it was that this bad air that was causing the problem. They never made the intuitive leap that whatever was causing the smell made the disease. I don't know how you get that far and not make it all the way, but humanity never fails to disappoint. So the people in London knew that there was a disease problem, and they knew that it was being caused by the bad smell. They didn't do anything about the open sewers in the city that were causing this bad smell, because that obviously wasn't the problem. Again, I don't know how you come this far and then fail to make it all the way. I mean, surely getting rid of what was causing the smell would have... You know what, it is what it is, the past happened how it happened, but god damn they were stupid! So they did what anyone would do in this situation. Try and get rid of the smell without getting rid of the thing causing the smell. They just tried to cover it up, basically the Victorian equivalent of using a whole can of Axe body spray instead of taking a shower. And as you can probably imagine, it did not go too well. But let's back up a bit, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. 
I've been saying that the London sewer system was bad, and I kind of explained why it was bad, but I think I need to set the scene for just how bad things were. Because whatever you're thinking right now, it was a million times worse. The Thames was a dumping ground for everything. It wasn't just the main sewer system slash drinking water for the sprawling metropolis of London. It was their primary garbage dump as well. If you had your hands on something that you didn't want anymore, then you just threw that in the Thames and the problem was solved. Absolutely every waste product of every kind went into the Thames. And remember, there's no environmental protection back then. This is pure free market economics, baby. Let her rip. Slaughterhouses, paper mills, paint factories. And if you've been listening to my show, you know just how much toxic shit they pumped out of paint factories. Breweries, shipyards, canneries, everything the Industrial Revolution chucked out went straight into the Thames. There was no household garbage service either, so anything you used on a personal level went straight into the Thames. And on top of all of that, you pumped the raw, untreated sewage of a decent chunk of Britain into it. And when you consider what the English deemed to be cuisine, you can only imagine the kind of toxic slurry that the Thames was turned into. Blood putting in, blood putting out. This is the kind of breeding conditions that Ninja Turtles thrive in. in These are Dickensian times. And Dickensian is a pejorative term for a reason. It's because this was a fucking nightmare. So imagine that you're living in these times. You're not rich because most people weren't. You're crammed into a tenement with a bajillion other people. Your personal space is about three square nanometers. And you're sleeping on a rope because people looked at hell and thought that Satan was a rookie when it came to human misery. Do you think, in these conditions, that you've got access to a toilet? Absolutely not. There ain't no privy for the common man. God no, you shit in a goddamn bucket, and if you're lucky, you do it behind a curtain so that the other 99 people in the room can't see you do it. They'll hear you, and they'll smell you, but at least you won't have to make eye contact. If you're lucky. Then when you're done, you take that bucket and you go on a merry jaunt down to the River Thames where you dump it into the river because the past is hell and nobody should ever want to time travel. Remember how I said there were three major cholera outbreaks in London in the mid-1800s and at their height over 2,000 Londoners were dying every week? Do you want to venture a guess as to where all of those corpses ended up? The Thames was like a Voltron of sewer, graveyard, industrial waste dump, Hieronymus Bosch painting, and maybe just a little bit of water. They want to play dirty? Then we'll call Captain Pollution! Let our polluting powers combine! Super radiation! Deforestation! Mud! Hunted! Paint! By your polluting powers combined, I am Captain Pollution! And you might be wondering, why would all of these Londoners dump sewage and industrial waste directly into their drinking water? Well, they didn't quite realize that they were doing it. They thought that if they dumped things into the Thames, then the Thames would carry it all the way out to sea, and then it would become the ocean's problem. Hell, maybe it would wash down to France and the French could deal with it. 
then it's their problem. I'm not even joking about that part. The English really hate the French. But here is the problem. The Thames is a tideway. It doesn't flow one way. It goes with the tides, which means that the water will run backwards up the Thames from time to time, bringing back all of that lovely goop that they were trying so hard to get rid of. So all of this toxic fecundity was flowing out into the ocean, and twice a day, the ocean said, no thanks, and pushed it all the way back up the Thames, and the situation kept getting worse and worse because there was nobody that was willing to tackle Project Shitstain. And it's not like people didn't notice the literally steaming pile of shit that had become the middle of London. I mean, it's impossible not to notice it. You might try and ignore it, but you can't not notice it. And anyone who was anyone in mid-1800s London had something to say, read, steaming shit pile. The Times newspaper ran an article calling it, quote, a pestiferous and typhus breeding abomination, end quote. And then they went on to say, we can colonize the remotest ends of the earth. We can conquer India. We can pay the interest of the world's most enormous debt ever contracted. We can spread our name and our fame and our fructifying wealth to every part of the world, but we cannot clean the River Thames. Even Charles Dickens got in the action, calling the Thames a deadly sewer in the place of a fine, fresh river. And I can certify that the offensive smells, even in that short whiff, have been of a most head and stomach distending nature. End quote, because I don't know what Charles Dickens sounded like. But I think when Charles Dickens weighs in on something, you can safely call that something Dickensian. The problem got so bad that in 1855, Michael Faraday got involved. Yeah, that Michael Faraday, the guy who invented electricity. Yes, I know, he didn't actually invent it. It's a fundamental universal force. Gosh, you guys are no fun. But Faraday took time from his busy schedule of building the future to say, look, this shit is getting out of hand. And he published a bunch of experiments which basically said, yeah, water's supposed to be clear, not opaque brown. This is a problem. And also, it creates a death fog that is visible to the naked eye that is also somewhat less than ideal. Faraday's paper, published in 1855, was named Observations on the Filth of the Thames. He wrote, quote, Near the bridges, the feculents rolled up in clouds so dense that they were visible at the surface, even in water of this kind. The smell was very bad, and common to the whole of the water. It was the same as which comes up from the gully halls of the street. The whole river was for a time a sewer. End quote. And if you don't know what a gully hole is, then apply a bit of context. Faraday continued, If we neglect this subject, we cannot expect to do so with impunity. Nor ought we be surprised if, ere many years are over, a hot season gives us sad proof of our folly. End quote. Faraday laying some straight prophecy down there. Only his many years in the future turned out to be three years. And I'm going to emphasize this point again because it needs emphasizing, and I'm going to continue to do this through the whole show. This is also the city's drinking water. So what do we do when one of the world's foremost scientists makes a dire prediction for the future? That's right, we ignore him. Some things never go out of style. 
Everyone ignored Faraday, and the exact thing that he predicted happened in exactly the way that he predicted it would. Not for the first time, I wish this show had some capacity for visuals, because there are hundreds of contemporaneous cartoons from this period that depict the great stench of the Thames, and most of them are amazing vignettes of satire. They're actually good, not like today's political cartoons, which are mostly Michael Lunig wondering why all of his favorite racial slurs don't fly anymore. These cartoons from 1850s are so surreal and faintly terrifying, it's like if Lewis Carroll dropped some acid and got food poisoning. One of them depicts what the water in the Thames would look like under a microscope, and it is great what the artist thought existed in the water of the Thames under a microscope. It's incredible. There's a cockroach carrying a coffin, there's a sperm chasing a cat, there's a turtle trying to eat a clown, you know, typical microbes. And these cartoonists and newspapers created a character called Dirty Father Thames, who looked like Santa got fired and had an acrimonious divorce with Mrs. Claus, lost custody of the elves, and then was forced to live in a bog. He looks like the Swamp Thing. And for some reason he carries a kettle on a long pole. I still haven't figured that one out. The Thames was such a reeking pool of filth that famously Queen Victoria once went on a boating trip that lasted less than five minutes. She spent the entire ride with her head buried in a bouquet of flowers trying to escape the smell until she ordered that the boat be turned around and docked so that she could retreat to the palace and presumably burn all of her clothes. And, lest we forget, Queen Victoria was a kinky bird. She wasn't some fey waif that fainted at the mere whiff of something that disagreed with her. Queen Vic ate some arse in her time, so if Vicky thinks it stinks, the river damn well stinks. Meanwhile, everyone is dying of cholera, and nobody is putting two and two together. Well, I say nobody, that's not quite true. There was one dissenting voice. There was a doctor by the name of John Snow. Yeah, okay, fine. I'll let you get it out of your system now. You know nothing, John Snow. In 1848, Dr. John Snow noticed a correlation between higher mortality rates and drinking water around industrial runoff. Which, you'd think having those two in close proximity in the first place would be a bit of a red flag, but apparently not. And remember... The Victorian era is still seen as a period of incredible scientific enlightenment. Go figure. But anyway, germs aren't real, miasma is, and small government is the solution to everything. That's the socioeconomic situation. Enter Jon Snow, who comes in and says, hang on a second, and he starts doing some tests on whether it's safe to drink water that someone else has taken a dump in. And so he published a paper on his findings, which was creatively titled on the mode of communication of cholera, in which he postulated that it was contaminated drinking water spreading the disease and not miasma. Snow was of the opinion that since the symptoms of cholera affected the guts and the bowels and not the lungs, then it was probably something to do with what they ate instead of something they breathed, it est miasma. And John Snow presented his findings to the smart people of London's aristocracy and... gosh, everyone laughed... Everyone knew it wasn't dirty water filled with poopy that made you sick. No, it was stinky air that was the problem. Miasma. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Damn it! I really tried not to do that. 
Jon Snow did find a rather unlikely ally, though. A certain Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was concerned about cholera taking so many of his parishioners, obviously not considering that this was all part of God's plan for so many people to be dying by shitting themselves to death. Uh, Whitehead wanted to map out the worst areas in London for cholera outbreaks and, I don't know, maybe do something about it instead of the official policy of pretending that it wasn't happening. So Henry Whitehead and Jon Snow began mapping cholera hotspots. Six years later, in 1854, during yet another cholera outbreak, Snow and Whitehead noticed a correlation between higher fatalities and a communal water pump used to supply the people of Soho. If anyone is listening from the fair city of London, this pump was actually located on Broad Street, which is uh, today Broadwick Street. So if you want to go along and have a look at a tiny little plaque dedicating where history happened, go for it. So anyway, since nobody took Jon Snow seriously, nothing was done about his findings. But he's the Lord Commander of the Night Watch. He's a man of action. It's time he got things done. So Snow went out in the dead of night and he cut off the handle of the water pump on Broad Street, sabotaging it so that nobody could use it, and they were forced to get their water from other sources in the city, sources of water that weren't quite as full of human effluvium. And wouldn't you believe it, the deaths stopped. No more cholera deaths. It's as simple as that. And now people started taking Jon Snow seriously, and they investigated this water pump, and they found out that a nearby cistern had a crack in it that was allowing sewage to seep into the water supply, and wouldn't you know it, maybe there's something to this whole not drinking other people's shit idea. They didn't take it too seriously, but still, the ball started rolling. Just not enough for anyone to get anything done about the whole sewer thing. Jon Snow died in the year of 1858 right before the series of events that would see his theories proven correct and the academia of England eat a huge amount of humble pie, and them probably enjoying that humble pie because the English will eat anything as long as you put it in a pie, and the city of London being forced to finally deal with their massive shit problem. But Jon Snow wasn't around for any of it. He died right before it happened. The universe, it seems, is not without a sense of irony. So as it happened, June of 1858 rolled around. You might notice that there's a link between the date of June 1858 and the title of this podcast, which is The Great Stink of 1858. Well done for spotting that. The summer of 1858 was a real stinker. Oddly enough, the term stinker to denote a really hot day doesn't come from this event at all, although it certainly fits. Stinker is Australian slang, and it denotes a day so hot that anything left outside will start to rot, and anyone out in the heat will begin to sweat so much that they'll start to stink. Ergo, stinker. Nothing to do with the great stink, it's just an interesting bit of convergent evolution. Anyway, the summer of 1858 was particularly hot. Not just hot by English standards, hot generally. As an Aussie, I always chuckle during our winter and English summer when we have roughly the same temperatures. You'll get weather reports from England saying something like, The heat today continued to be intolerable, with temperatures soaring to over 25 degrees. And I'll laugh because 25 degrees is the temperature where I might consider not wearing a jumper, but I'll still take one just in case. But this particular summer, 1858, was genuinely hot. London got hit with temperatures in the mid-40s, which, as someone who loves heat like a baby spider does, even I will admit that that's pretty fucking hot. 
June, which in the backward hemisphere of the world is the summertime of the year, June was especially hot in the year of 1858, and on top of that heatwave, London was suffering from the effects of an ongoing drought. This meant that the Thames didn't have the usual amount of water flowing into it, and the water that was there was evaporating at an alarming rate. As a result, this meant that all of the shit in the water was being concentrated to levels much higher than normal, and normal was not crash hot to begin with. It was so bad that there were reports of people as far away as Edgware getting sick from the smell when the winds changed. Edgware is about 10 kilometers away from where the worst of the Thames rot was taking place. And when I say it was full of shit, I don't mean just shit. Well, I do all kinds of shit, but also other stuff. There was the human shit, of course. It was the sewer system, so that's bad already. But then there's animal shit. Remember, this is before cars. The primary way of getting around is by horse. Horses create a lot of waste. That's all getting dumped into the river. Then there's the dumping in the river. You've got garbage, chuck it in the Thames. Then there's all the industrial runoff polluting the river. Lead, ammonium, arsenic, asbestos, sulfuric acid, kryptonite, name your horrible thing that makes everyone die, that's also going into the river. And this caused all of the fish to die, because fish don't like swimming in a soup of all of the most toxic chemicals man can create. It makes them die, so they're dead and contributing to the problem. And then there are birds and animals drinking this water, and they're dying and adding to this toxic ragu. And now, all of this is getting more and more concentrated as the water recedes in the summer heat. And as the water recedes, this toxic slurry is left on the banks of the river to bake in the hot June sun. All day. Every day. Alright, hot June sun is a bit of an exaggeration. We're talking about London here, so maybe sun is too strong a word, but it's hard to narrate something like the hot slightly less overcast. The water, which already stank, was evaporating to reveal the riverbank, which smelled like the water, but times a million. I literally cannot imagine this smell. It's just beyond human conception. There are a lot of accounts, thousands of accounts, newspaper articles, opinion pieces, political cartoons, hansards. We have so many accounts of this smell, and I've read most of them, and I still cannot imagine how bad this smell was. And I wager that you can't either. So just imagine all of the worst possible things that you've ever smelled, and then mix them all together, and then try to imagine that heady mix in a concentration so powerful that the fumes were visible to the naked eye. And then you'll start to get a sense of why it was called the Great Stink of 1858. There's a great quote from the Times here, which sums it up perfectly, and it goes, quote, The gentility of speech is at an end. It stinks. And whoso once inhales the stink can never forget it and can count himself lucky if he lives to remember it. End quote. Which reminds you that the Fourth Estate used to actually count for something before generations of Murdochs ruined it for everyone. In June of 1858, the smell got so bad that something was finally done about it, and a plan was put into action to deal with London's historically bad sewage system. The government of the day sprang into action and passed legislation in record time to rectify this problem, finding three million pounds of state treasury to put towards the problem. That's four billion dollars in today money. 
and the politicians of the time of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords were able to get all of this done in record time because of their profound sense of civic duty. It just so happens that it's an amazing coincidence that the Houses of Parliament, where all of these politicians had to work every day, they just so happened to be built smack bang on the banks of the Thames at ground zero of the smell, but I'm sure that had nothing to do with the alacrity of their response. Or, to quote the Times once again, quote, The most deserving people forced to endure the noxious fumes of decades of scorched fecal matter were undoubtedly the members of Parliament. End quote. The Prime Minister at the time called the Thames, quote, a Stygian pool reeking with ineffable and unbearable horror, end quote. Which, you got to admit, Benjamin Disraeli had a way with a quill. It's very Lovecraftian there. The British Houses of Parliament had only recently been installed on the Thames, and now they were right at ground zero for the biggest fart in history. But it wasn't until the Great Stink that any action actually took place. We've got records of letters written by constituents for years saying deal with this horrific stench and the parliamentary answer back is it's not my jurisdiction and everything pretty much getting ignored, which is kind of like how politics works today. And then there were the papers from great scientists like Jon Snow and Michael Faraday and they kept getting ignored too, just like how politics works today. And then Parliament's solution initially was to just try and mask the smell with perfume and kind of perfume the drapes and windows to stop the stink, like an Engadine McDonald's, just like politics works today. The smell was so bad that politicians went to work holding perfumed handkerchiefs to their noses, and, this is fun, they treated the curtains on all of the windows with what is known as chloride of lime. Chloride of lime is another name for calcium hydrochloride. It's a disinfecting agent first patented in 1799, and it's basically just powdered bleach. It was used to disinfect things back in the day before we had better disinfectants, and there was a theory that putting this on the curtains would stop the miasma from coming in and giving everyone cholera or diphtheria or some shit. Like, putting this chloride on the curtains would stop the smell, which would stop the disease. But it didn't work because the smell was just too strong and because miasma isn't a thing. So obviously, your next solution is to apply calcium hydrochloride directly to the problem. That'll fix things. Head on. Apply directly to the forehead. So they poured tons and tons of this stuff into the Thames to try and get rid of the stink. Calcium hydrochloride is a potent oxidizing agent. Try and imagine how much worse that made the problem. This is like saying gasoline puts out fires, right? And one of the other solutions they had was to try and flood the river with as much carbolic acid as possible. Carbolic acid is also known as phenol, and it was recently discovered at the time. Uh, Phenol has a number of industrial uses, but one of its side properties is that it's an antiseptic. So I'm not mocking Londoners for trying this, even if it didn't work, because phenol is a mild antiseptic. It works in theory. But the fun thing is, is that the antiseptic properties of carbolic acid had only recently been discovered a couple of years before this by the chemist and doctor Joseph Lister. And if the name Joseph Lister sounds familiar, it's because Listerine was named after him. So yes, the people of London tried to solve the Great Stink by flooding the Thames with mouthwash. 
So after a few of these wily coyote schemes failed, the government finally realized that with the money they were spending on quick fixes, they could probably just invest in a new sewer system that would deal with this entire problem once and for all. It's probably the first sensible decision that they've made in this story up until this point. And so the British Parliament turned to an engineer by the name of Joseph Bazalgette, who would later become Sir Joseph Bazalgette because of the absolutely stellar job he did of fixing this problem. Bazalgette was an engineer by trade, and he had something of a reputation as a guy who could get things done. So when the Parliament decided that they needed a new sewer system built, they tracked down Uncle Joe Bazalgette and said, hey, do you reckon you could fix this? And there are a few more people involved in this story, but I'm rolling them all into Joseph Bazalgette because he's the main character and it sort of simplifies the narrative. And Bazalgette responds to the Parliament and he says, well, wouldn't you know it, I've actually got a plan here that's ready to go. I wrote it up three years ago and I sent it to your offices 36 months ago because, you know, the city fucking stinks. And me and Jon Snow and Michael Faraday and Charles Dickens, we got together and we hammered out a plan of action because we got tired of waiting for you dipshits to do anything about it. Well, actually, he was probably a lot more 19th century about it, so it probably sounded something like, Said plans for sewage amelioration have been sitting in your parlour by and by for the past three years hence, you dithering bilge fucks. Or something to that effect. So, Joseph Bazalgette designs and implements a new sewer system for the entire city of London. In a nutshell, Bazalgette said, how about we make our own version of the Thames that runs alongside the Thames and we all shit into that. And then we make it spit out at a point in the ocean where it's not just going to wash back up again. And he also designed measures to prevent the system from clogging up or overflowing. Honestly, it's one of the greater engineering feats of the last few hundred years, but nobody knows about it because it's all about shit. Now here's something cool. Joseph Bazalgette, he's a bit of a maverick for his time. He isn't like most of the educated men of the Victorian era, and by that I mean he wasn't an absolute dickhead. He was actually very intelligent, and amazingly, he was able to use and implement that intelligence. Sir Joseph Bazalgette was amazingly, astonishingly forward-thinking. He did the calculations, and he worked out the amount of pipes and the widths of them and whatnot that London would need to accommodate the amount of waste that was being generated. And then he took that number, and he tripled it. He reasoned that London was just going to keep growing, so there needed to be ample amount of coverage in his network to accommodate that growth. And that is the reason why London's toilets still work today. Unlike some other old cities where you can't flush toilet paper down or else you'll make the whole thing explode. Which is, incidentally, the reason why I will never visit Greece. If Joseph Bazalgette had not done this then London's sewer system would have been right back to where it was by the mid-1950s. It's currently projected to last for another 90 years, at which point it's more than likely that nothing will be done about it until it's too late because politicians never change. So Joseph Bazalgette was one of the greatest visionaries of the Victorian age, and most people have never heard of him because he worked in the medium of Dookie. And because of his work and Michael Faraday and Jon Snow, London finally got their shit together and fixed their sewer system. The Great Stink of 1858 never happened again. The Thames actually ran clear for once, and it still does, for the most part. And there was never another cholera outbreak in London ever again. One of the most important considerations you should ever make 
is where you're going to take a dump. It's important to give a shit about that. London sorted it out in the mid-1800s. And in the lands of Middle-earth, as the elves went west into the Undying Lands, and ushered in the Age of Men, under the stewardship of Elisar, who was once Aragorn, son of Arathon, and the nations of Gondor and Rohan prospered and grew, as with the Shire and Hobbiton, we can only hope that Middle-earth had some equivalent of Sir Joseph Bazalgette, or else they're only one hot summer away from wishing they had Sauron back. Fool of a took! Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity! Once again, my sincerest thanks for listening. I do appreciate each and every one of you. If you're a newer listener, then uh, thank you very much. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. If you're an older listener, longer-term listener, I should say, then uh, I applaud your stamina. If this is the kind of thing that you're into, then uh, feel free to give it a cheeky like or a subscribe or anything like that. Anything to help the engagement really helps me out a lot. Any nudge you can give the algorithm is really, really helpful to me. Or, if you kind of like the whole vibe of this thing and you'd like to get more HGT in your system, then you can head on to Patreon, which is patreon.com slash historygotime, where you can uh, subscribe for some uh, extra shows and whatnot. Those people over there, they, they live the good life and you're missing out. So just nudge, nudge, hint, hint. Uh, thank you all very much, and I will catch you next time.